Hey crew, welcome back to the show. My name's Eric Wright. I'm the host of your Disco Posse podcast, and you're listening to a really cool conversation, lots of fun, from a man who's living on the edge. And I mean, literally, edge computing and really, really neat stuff around networking. Uh, and it, this is really cool. Ori Industries is the company. The man you're going to hear from is Rick Taylor. He is somebody who's got a really cool history in the industry. That story sort of comes through and, and, and his approach to it, I really dig it. Understands both the research and the execution. So really comes from it with the idea of being in a standards body, being part of driving the way in which we can be successful through protocols and then bringing that into execution in a platform. So this is a really, really wild conversation in the idea of product development, R&D, and product delivery, product management, and plus Rick's a fantastic, uh, fantastic human. It's a lot of fun. Uh, so I hope you like it as much as I did. And speaking of things that I like, you know what I like? I like people that make this show happen. And holy heck, I couldn't do it without the amazing folks like JR and the team at the Shift Group. That's right. Hang on a second, hit pause, go on over to shiftgroup.io because they got you covered for what you need to build and scale your sales organization at your startup. I know, I saw it in action. I literally got to stand beside JR and watch his work and saw him go from elite sport to elite sales professional. He's doing the same thing, bringing through, taking people who are elite professionals in sport, transitioning their career into sales, whether it's technology sales or startup sales. And he's got everything from BDRs to account executives to leaders, really, really doing something around not only creating the people's opportunity, but training them through it, helping you build your sales organization and your culture first. If you're not doing it with culture first, it will get away from you. JR knows this and he's doing a fantastic job. So head on over to shiftgroup.io and check it out. And while you're there, open up another tab and head on over to vee.am forward slash disco posse where the fine folks at Beam have you covered for everything you need for your data protection needs. Trust me, I lost a whole bunch of stuff on purpose, like literally deleted a bunch of stuff just to see how easy it was to get back. It was like stupidly easy to get back. So you want to protect your data? They got you covered. You go on over to vee.am forward slash Cisco Posse. Get it done. All right, let's get on the stuff that really matters, which is Rick Taylor from Ori Industries on the Disco Posse podcast. Hi there, I'm Rick Taylor. I'm the chief engineer at Ori Industries and welcome to the Disco Posse podcast. like right. a pro there you go rick thank you very much and this was a a great opportunity for me to learn a lot more about what you and the team are at ori are doing also fantastic you know common friends that we have with georgiana kamza who's just a a really amazing human she's uh, she's a blessing to me with the amount of great folks that she connects me with and uh, I know that she works with you 
Uh, and I'm excited. You're, you and the team are doing neat stuff. We're going to dive in on, on lots of good things on, we're going to get edgy, literally. <laughs> so Rick, for folks that are new to you, if you don't mind, let's give a quick bio, talk about your, your background and, and then we'll get into the Ori story. Sure. So um, I'm I'm about as old as I look. So uh, I've been working around the software industry for my whole working life. Uh, graduated computer science uh, at a Bristol University in the UK. Um, moved into the software industry, working in a, a number of different markets. So uh, defense and aerospace, as well as some time in the gaming industry, worked as a consultant, uh, working around small companies, small businesses, a couple of startups. And then I've spent the last uh, 10 years prior to joining Ori, I was working at Airbus Defense and Space uh, as a principal networking researcher and engineer there, leading the work they're doing on advanced um, uh, routing and network equipment for uh, challenged environments is, is the, the way they describe it. So my background is computer science, software engineering, with a specialization in, in networking, particularly uh, developing uh, network protocols, uh, particularly routing protocols and overlay network um, techniques for, for non-traditional environments, for challenging environments, uh, be that um, you know, space, um, emergency services environments, and and bringing that understanding of networking isn't just the land you run in your office. It's it's more complex than that. And some of the techniques you learn dealing with the, these more challenging environments allow you to do cleverer things when you bring it back into into that more traditional data center environment, that more traditional fixed infrastructure environment. So. Um, I think that was half the appeal moving out of, of that background of, of quite weird, odd edge, edge in a different way of, of the networking field to move across into um, much more of the cloud orchestration piece and understanding how bringing uh, my understanding that, that networking actually makes things work. You know, that's it's all very well having uh, your your processor that's consuming CPU doing calculations, but unless it can talk to other things, that's what the cloud's built on. It's built on communication. It's not actually built on processing. And so the solution to, to as I see it, to take cloud beyond, hey, I'm running a container or I'm running a VM into, I now have this disparate set of microservices doing all these clever things and communicating in smart, intelligent and secure ways. That's the appeal for me. And that's that's kind of why I moved across to, to Ori Industries. What and everything effectively is a path of communication. And as we see distributed and disaggregated work workloads and the systems that are now designed to be able to handle that, we, you know, we're 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 finally getting around to naming it, you know, which is always interesting, but really that the path of communication, some whether it's you know over the bus. You know, then we saw the introduction even just of like storage protocols over network. And it took a long time for folks to understand that like I want I want to see physical fiber cables, you know, connecting my my compute to my storage. Even there, technically, it, it is over protocol. Like there is ultimately yeah. protocol standards that are in that communication path. It's just so happens that there's a bloody hard wire that's connecting the two things together. But it's everything we do, there's this real weird thing of like 
people don't understand the impact of communication, latency, the impact, especially when you get into non-traditional, you know, and, and as you said, like challenging implementations where you have very sporadic asynchronous patterns of communication and and access to network. You know, it's it's a I'm really excited by what's going on now in the standards bodies that are setting what we're seeing implemented. And then the, by the time we hear that it's real, it's been real for a decade. It's just yes. that we've accepted and and you know a handful of of the major players have now got practice units that are that are built around it. Uh, mm -hmm. But the truth is you and you've been you've been close to what edge was before it was called edge. <laughs> yeah, when it when it was called that bit we haven't worked out how to connect to yet. You know, yeah. it's, it's only when the marketing guys worked out that they needed a, a cool buzzword that it became edge. Before that, it was that box that is only partially connected. Um, I'm glad you bring up the, the, the standard stuff. So I, I'm heavily engaged with the IETF. I, I chair two different working groups, um, which on paper don't seem to be particularly related. But when you start to dive into uh, into how I got there, you can start to see some kind of connection. So um, I co-chair the Delay and Disruption Tolerant Networking Working Group, which is kind of part of the transport area. But that's really driven by, um, it's built on work that uh, started in NASA at, at JPL and, and the, the smart guys there trying to solve, uh, you know, the simple problem of, of how do we get data back from, from the first generation of Mars rovers? Um, and it's now very much being um, uh, trumpeted by Vint Cerf, who was involved in, in, in saying, okay, over interplanetary distances, can we make TCP work? And the answer right. was no, they tried it, and it doesn't work, uh, because latency really starts to kill that round trip time. And rather than, uh, and this shows the man's genius, rather than, than trying to tweak the, the the parameters and tweaking the timeouts and so on, they, they, they realized we actually need to change the paradigm here. And so that was moving from uh, a, a constant stream of acknowledged small packets, you know, your 1500 byte MTUs are flying forwards and backwards, to say, actually, we need a store and forward system where we can take the information, package it up and move it in a, in a, a deterministically reliable way across the network. So uh, it allows you to do, uh, so we've developed a number of, uh, of protocols to support this. So there were, this year we've uh, published four RFCs. So that's the first output from the group. And uh, I, I suggest people go and look at the DTN working group uh, charter to see what these RFCs are. Basically, it saves me having to quote four-digit numbers here. Um, <laughs> but fundamentally, it's it's allowing communication between two devices where the sender doesn't have to be online at the same time as the receiver. So that seems blindingly obvious. But if if you think if you're making an HTTP request from from the web browser on your laptop to somewhere in the in the in the guts of Google's data center to, you know, look at Google Maps or something, then the way TCP IP works is it is expected that the server is online and there is a fully connected path between your laptop, your Wi-Fi router, your, your ISP, whatever MPLS they're using to drag it across the, the backbone of the internet into the guts of Google. They're both expected to be there so that the, you know, the, the CIN and the ACK and so on can flow and then we can do our TLS handshake or whatever. 
but over interplanetary distances and in challenged environments where that doesn't apply, you just can't use these reliable protocols and you've got to change the paradigm. And that is fascinating. And it has been such a privilege to work with, um, you know, the guys from the space community. So that's not just NASA, it's also ESA, it's it's the JAXA community. It's, it's the global community right. of, of, uh, of space communications engineers. It's been fantastic working with them. And also, obviously, the, the, the large um, terrestrial companies who are looking at industrial automation and, and things like that. This is really appealing. And it's, um, it's fascinating to work in that field. And that, that I really enjoy. Um, well, it lets you to really go back to true first principles thinking, yeah. right? This is, which is such a fundamental shift in this anybody, this sort of the idea that you, you sh while we've gotten to a certain point where we believe we could incrementally affect what we have existing today and potentially bring it in, there's always this like, well, can you reuse what we've got? Yeah. And, and it's very much the, you know, there's a combination of, of that, like, let's not, Let's not reinvent the wheel. Like, no, actually, let's. It's actually a fantastic idea to think about what, why we invented the wheel in the first place. Is really we're not reinventing the wheel. We're going back to core requirements of what generated the need for a wheel to exist. I completely agree. And, and the key phrase for me is always, "What is the problem we're trying to solve here?" Right. It's not what is the solution that's in front of us and how do we change it. And don't get me wrong. It, sometimes the, the the most sensible approach is to take something you have and evolve it and and, and so on and you, you will end up at a, at a good solution i mean genetics shows us this but there is also a moment where you have to take a step back and say what are we actually trying to do here let's stop bending out of shape all the tools we have in front of us and all all the in this case the protocols and so on and say we've got to change the we've got to change the rules of the game because we need to think differently a classic example was a a, a a lunchtime conversation had with a couple of guys at an ITF meeting a, a couple of years ago now, where quick was the was the hot buzzword. So again, you know, this is HTTP two and driving onto HTTP three and, and saying actually we can build reliable protocols with security built in, single handshake all over UDP. Again, very clever work, a real twenty first century protocol. And as there always is when there's a new kid on the block. Quick was seen as the answer to everything. And I remember having a, this discussion, I think it actually was over a coffee with, with a couple of guys who were saying, well, we can solve your interplanetary problems. You just use Quick. You can change the timers. You can do your handshake. And a <laughs> colleague of mine who was stood next to me, who, who works um, who works for NASA, turned around and said, Quick is fine, but when Jupiter comes between you and the Earth, Quick isn't going to help. And, and, and that's where the rules of the game change. So... I, I love that challenge and talking about the other working group sort of, sort of almost by contrast, but not quite is um, I co-chair the reliable and available wireless working group, which is a very strange title. The IETF has this great policy of picking good acronyms. So we have raw, which sounds like exactly. really I love that. I love the acronyms. They're so fantastic. Oh yeah. I mean, T's uh, there's one, you know, ciders called cider because it's cider. Um, it, it feels like we ought to be wrestlers. But uh, reliable and available wireless is really um, extending the paradigms of what they call deterministic networking. So there's a there's a big existing working group within the IETF. It's got a lot of traction with IEEE in terms of time sensitive networking, and it's it's about tackling the problem of if you have broadcast media or 
streaming with real requirements about bounded latency and, and more generically bounded determinism so that you can say, I know the communication between me and that far end point is reliable within these bounds. So I know I'm going to get seven nines of um, reliability in terms of packet loss. I know I'm going to get between 100 and 150 milliseconds of latency. So I know what the latency is. I'm not removing the latency, but I know what it is. So I can do my key keyframes for, for broadcast media and all that kind of thing. We've developed, uh, the ITF uh, DetNet Working Group have developed a, a protocol stack and applications and protocols to, to manage this across wired infrastructure. So that's over copper and, and fiber optic and getting all the switching right. equipment to work. We're now trying to approach the problem of, okay, well, there's, there's uh, 5G and there's Wi-Fi and there are other radio systems out there as well, which will carry digital comms. How do we get determinism to work in that environment? And that's a great place to live in as well, because the problem with the wireless environment, the electromagnetic environment, of course, is you can't control physics. You can't just say, here is my protocol, dear physics, you know, now I will affect the, the atmosphere for the next 200 milliseconds in order to do this because I have a transmission opportunity. It's the other way around. The atmosphere is in control. You know, you can't tell the sun not to have a solar flare right now because you've got, you know, it's right. it's the ad break in the middle of, of some sporting event. <laughs> you know, so it's it's kind of understanding that the the, the physical environment is is moving in radically uh, difficult and, un, and completely unpredictable ways, or maybe you could predict it, and managing that and saying, well, how do we overlay some kind of deterministic bounds over these transmissions that we build? And that's another fun problem. And we've got some good ideas. And, you know, we're, we're still at that kind of use case uh, architecture framework, exploring the problem space phase. And that's really appealing. And um, I love it. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't it, have the answers. But... It's an interesting thing. There's this real dichotomy of like what exists and the strength of the base that we have to depend on. It's like we can't just say like we're going to stop the existing compute you know, methods, right? Obviously, there's so much that's out there that's running the internet today in the traditional, you know, infrastructure patterns and application patterns. But like you said, this this thing of somebody would come to you and say like, well, I need to make sure that I could have, you know, synchronous data exchange for replication between these two sites. You know, how do we get that? And there's a point where you say you can't, like there literally yes. is by, by the laws of physics, there will never be a sub 10 millisecond gap between these two physical sites because they're interplanetary. So yes. now what do we actually have to solve? The real problem is that you need synchronous data transport. Well, it's an application challenge now. Like if we, we cannot solve this at the network layer. Now, what are the application patterns and distributed systems patterns and then the funny thing is then those can be applied locally and we actually see those advantages. I mean, look, we've seen distributed uh, data structures, key value yeah. stores, where they have like seemingly tiny use cases to solve one problem. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, oh, you know, all of a sudden it's it's this thing, right? I mean, right now, of course, you get the sort of preponderance of people that believe that Web3 is the answer to everything. and. You know, the, but that's there's there's like we're at that phase of just rub yeah, some web that, three that on of, it. And yeah, it's, it's, it's the, the panacea moment, as I call it, where <laughs> yeah. whatever it is, it's the cure for everything. 
and and then we'll have what do they call it the pit of despair when when that bubble bursts completely and everyone says i'm never touching that again uh, that's right yeah, I'm, I'm i'm old enough and gray enough to have seen this come and go before you know it was the, i remember the when i was kind of a uh, university age or just out of out of university it was at the height of the great first ai explosion where oh, yeah, yeah. prologue and was going to create artificial intelligence and it was going to be amazing and solve everything and you know governments and institutions sunk billions in it and yeah great computer science came out of it and i have a very soft spot for for logic languages and and prologue and that really that really touches an, an my computer science nerves and i and i love that kind of stuff but it didn't solve it you know, and, and now we're having a second wave where we're, you know, we're looking at, at, at different approaches and, and neural network systems for AI and great advances there. Again, it's not going to be the solution to everything, but yeah, uh, uh, correctly applied, a sprinkling of machine learning and artificial intelligence will do fantastic things in terms of prediction. It's a great tool when used properly, but is a distributed ledger based on crypto hashing blockchain per se, is that the solution to everything? No. Is it yeah. good as a distributed ledger? Yeah. Can we afford to burn as much fossil fuels to do it? I'm not sure. Um, probably not. So, uh, and that actually talk about fossil fuels, that, that's the nice thing about some of my IETF engagement is I get to meet and work with some fantastic people on, on the problem scoped within the IETF. But you also meet interesting researchers and there's an opportunity to, to work on other things. So, um, my co-chair in the rural working group is is actually a researcher at, at intel and she is driving a lot of uh work within intel and within the community as well about trying to um measure the carbon intensity of network transmission and oh. trying to get that so we we've we put an opinion uh paper out a, a quick two-pager um into I've, I've forgotten who we put it into. It was about two years ago. And we are both keep promising each other that we're turning it into a full-size paper. So if I say this live now, I'm pretty much committing that I'm actually... That's it. That was officially... Yeah. The time is marked. You're committed now. Yeah, I've, I've committed to the fact that we're, we're going to do this. But, but the concepts, I think, are really strong, which is if we can measure carbon intensity consumption by, by the transmission of data across a certain network, and that's a big if there, we, there's no reason why you couldn't attach that as a, uh, as a, a BGP attribute, as, a, as an attribute within the routing protocol you're using. So you could share that carbon intensity information globally across the global internet or locally within some sort of private infrastructure so that you could start to make routing decisions based on how much carbon it's going to take to transmit that data from A to B. So um, you could decide... If, for example, you were a company with a strong green message as part of your brand, for example, a, 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 an ecological NGO or something like that, right. it could be appealing to you to make sure that the service provider you use to host all your network infrastructure and your, your mailing lists and your web pages and all that kind of stuff, it would be quite important to you to understand that that service provider is using the lowest carbon intensity infrastructure possible to manage and maintain that network and all that transmission currently that is measurable for the compute resources so you you know you can work out at how many watts a, a rack is using and, and how many gigawatts a data center is using but no one is really measuring the environmental impact of 
data transmission between these data centers. Right. And actually, it's a bit of, there's a couple of researchers uh, in Switzerland who've done some interesting early papers on it. Um, a lot of it focused on uh, Wi-Fi and 5G, but looking at their data, we think actually the main core backbone of the internet is consuming far more data than we get, uh, far more carbon or far more electricity, let's put it that way, than we expect. And sourcing that in a less carbon intensive way, I think is good for all of us in general, but I think it's important to be able to measure such things. So this kind of plays into this whole theme about non-traditional metrics. Don't just, you know, we worked out hop count was a bad way to route. So we started to get into cost metrics to, and then people started to play tricks and say, oh, well, we'll have latency sensitive routing or well, you know, but what about if you want to route based on how private is that path from A to B? Does this go right. through countries with a bad habit of um, government organizations reading the metadata and doing things? You might choose to route separately. Uh, carbon intensity, another classic example of a metric you might want to associate with a path across a network. And how do we get applications and end users to, to, to gain access to it? How do we approach it? It's such, a, such an interesting topic. I just wish it I is. had more of me to work on more of this. <laughs> I know. And well, this is the exciting stuff because you think the impact, because this is true, like scope three sustainability, which is which is that odd thing. So scope one, of course, is like this is direct, like I am consuming compute yeah. at my desk. That's scope one. I am directly responsible for the amount of of usage of, of power and, and carbon impact. Scope two is sort of second tier where you think of adjacent things that you are using, but not necessarily in direct control of. And then scope three is your providers, right? So we, yes. but in the same way, because it's hands off, it's sort of like, you know, out of sight, out of mind, people can unfortunately easily say, I have to depend that my cloud provider, my network provider, my, you know, everything provider, has their scope one plan in place and they've made promises. So we have this odd thing where we set scope three goals and pat ourselves on the back. Like we've yeah. done sustainability rights. And you're like, no, 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 <laughs> like you, you can affect this locally and you don't know that they're going to get there, which is like, I, I'm old enough to remember there were days, like, I don't remember the year, but we heard about Los Angeles as an example oh. saying there would be no fossil fueled cars on allowed on the roadway by, well, I'm pretty sure it's around 2025, if not even yeah. maybe, maybe already days that have passed. So we made these bold promises, but then never said, what, what are we actually tactically doing and what are we doing in the research field, tying it to implementations mm. to actually reach these goals and even with sustainability people like i talk to people all the time and they say yeah we've got we have our sustainability goal we've set it you know by 2030 we'll be you know carbon neutral whatever the thing is and and they're doing good things i'm not discounting that it's, oh, it's absolutely. A, it's a laudable effort right but then i always say now what have you done over the past 12 months towards that goal not about what you're doing now forward but literally what have you already done mm -hmm. that was setting you on this path and it's really interesting because they do often realize they are doing sometimes more than they, they think but it helps them to say like okay how do we accelerate that like actual tactical work that we can do that's affecting this thing
and 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 what can the standards bo uh, bodies do to aid this? I mean, I right. think there's a, there's an interesting thing where um, at the height of uh, you know the the Snowden leaks and the precursors to that, there was uh, a general awakening, um, uh, certainly amongst uh, the networking community, to say, "Oh God, we've written a load of protocols that leak metadata." like like a fire hose without any consideration of this and and the ietf quite rightly stepped up and said okay we need to look over these protocols we've got in place how do we improve the privacy and and and, and get this i think there is probably a need to understand how we can do the same thing that we have done to tackle privacy and to some extent online safety to say the same about um you know uh, mitigating its climate change and understanding these sort of things. It takes global collaboration to make these things work. Otherwise, um, don't get me wrong, local action is very important and all these changes start at home, but there's, you know, the internet is the world's biggest machine. And, and right. as countries of various colors and, and, and political ilks have discovered, you can't turn it off. No, it, it's too big for one country to change. Um, so we've got to collaborate in order to, to to make this better for all of us in terms of, you know, the sheer amount of material we're, we're consuming, the sheer amount of uh, damage we're doing to the environment. And I and I, what's strange is a lot of my friends would, would be absolutely bemused because I'm not a particularly green person. I, I'm, again, I'm saying this live, I'm, you know, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a vegan. I may have a beard, but I, you know, it's but it, it is kind of thing where, where actually we need to be grown up about this and say, well, actually, we probably do need to do something. And and I work at a, I, I don't work, but I I, um, I interact and I and I and I help make a, a standards defining organisation function. So why shouldn't I? try and make sure that we're going in the right direction with these things so that's that's kind of yeah there, there we go I'm, I'm i'm getting sort of moralistic and, and philosophical about these things but i think it's it's kind of one of those things that's important as well as just doing for cool sure times. yeah when, and it, we have to be able to mix and merge those two things right there's yeah. stuff that we are we're doing and, and it's towards a path even with standards definitions like we mm. saw you know, we think about the days when we look back at like, you know, what would be the, the, you know, the protocol we would choose for you know, distributed networks across layer two, you mm -hmm. know, and there was this real challenge of, you know, it was like, I think it was VXLAN and, and OTV, you know, and, yeah. and people said like, what was the choice? Well, major players, VMware, you know, chose VXLAN as their, their routes to, you know, their protocol of choice. Others, you know, Cisco went the route with OTV. End result, more people were using VXLAN. It just became the sort of a, the yes. protocol standard in those cases. But the interesting thing, or sorry, it's like so layer two over layer three, mm. we had this this problem that was being solved because we were already doing it. And the standards bodies had been there for a long time. And those vendors go to help to drive the standards adoption. And it's never completely altruistic, but in a way it is because we, you, you may have a commercial responsibility to drive adoption of a thing that you're developing towards. However, by doing so, you're also eating the R&D. You're eating the responsibility of success of this as a protocol and a standard and a value. And then when that gets adopted more broadly by additional vendors, which is ultimately the goal, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm then you 
are no longer in charge of the protocol. It, it is now living, breathing, you know, it's, so I always admire companies like yourself that put people in the research community to help drive standards because it really, it's a long game and you're, yes. you're committing to the future that may be, you know, the, the future of any of our companies may not be the same in 18 months, but you're making decisions at a standards body level, which have a much longer viewpoint. And, and so I, I just, I, I really admire it's, folks like yourself that, are, that are, have that ability to have a long view. It's not, I'm going to be slightly cynical here. It's not all altruistic. Oh, I, no, I, no, I absolutely. It, but I think it's, it, it, and it's not meant to be, but it is by accident. Yes, because of the nature of networking, because right. fundamentally companies A, company A's box needs to talk to company B's box. So they have to agree something because A can't control all the market and they bump into B quite often, or they work out that by talking to B, they get some financial advantage. So you can see the game theory that comes out. Right. But a lovely side effect of the game theory is a sort of public good emerges. And, and, and one of the things I quite like about the IETF as compared to some other SDOs, and I'm, and I'm not going to be critical, but the IETF, which I have the most experience of, is most definitely not a pay-to-play organization. So it's very much, yes, you have to be sponsored and, and you have to pay your dues in order to attend conferences, but the work is done in the public. And it is, right. everyone there is a contributor personally they may be financed and and a large multinational may have bought their plane ticket and be paying for their hotel room and may even have bought their conference fees but i turn up as rick taylor i don't turn up as right chief engineer of ori industries i i am me i it may say ori industries on my badge but i'm there as me so and that sort of lowers the bar so you bump into a guy called jeff in a corridor and you have a conversation with jeff about I don't know, uh, BGP uh, route advertisement or something interesting like that. And it doesn't matter that Jeff is a senior technologist at Juniper or whatever. He's just Jeff and he knows what he's talking about. And that sort of decorporation of the organization is really productive. The downside is because people don't pay to play, so to speak. I think the IETF is very dependent on uh, the Internet Society and various charitable donations to keep funding. And uh, some other organizations have much, much deeper pockets and therefore can do much more glamorous conferences and do a much better PR job. But um, Yeah, it, it, it is the interesting, but it's, as you say that in that case, right? So imagine we've got Rick and, and Jeff, you know, they may have logos underneath them right now, but truth is if, you know, for whatever reason were to occur, you suddenly change organizations, inevitably you're going to be at the next IETF yes. discussion. It's just that you've got a different logo underneath your name. It very much separates. I even treat this in the technology community, just like the broader, mm -hmm. you know, tech group that I, my peer group, I often don't even know where some people work because I more care about their contribution to the broader community. Yeah. You know, it's, and then the secondary effect of course is like, Oh, you work for you know, VMware, you work for Cisco, you work for IBM, you work for AMD, whoever it's going to be. 
then you're like, oh, wow. So what is your team doing as well? Like it's, it's individual contributors to a group with the greater good in mind. Yes, hopefully. And, hopefully. and in the standards body, there's an even greater commitment of that long-term capability because you're literally firing money at research, you know, and they're hunting for research grants and yes. they're, they're doing this stuff to help define the future of things, you know, like, and, and it, it really is tough to pin the value, which is why they, they have to stay non-commercial there. It's a, it's an interesting balance. I work with SNIA a lot, which is the storage and networking. Uh, oh, right. And uh, yeah, same thing. Like you see the people that are there and you think, wow, like you're incredibly smart people. And you're doing this incredible stuff that no one will see for like four years <laughs> until someone baptizes it. And it's it is amazing to see this formation of a standard and then it then get accepted. It's uh the the the, the sad counter side of it is I think, and I don't have the real stats, this is gut reaction. I would say probably a third of all of the output from uh, organizations like the IETF, they people devote five or seven years of, of their careers to, to to getting these really elegant standards for really elegant protocols that just go nowhere, and and the industry moves on, and the industry has pivoted off to a different direction, right. and that beautiful piece of work they built just kind of sits there. You know, I'm sure you can go through the RFC register and just say that's amazing. There's a whole protocol which does something completely irrelevant now. And, and the poor guys who, and the nice thing is actually doing a bit of archaeology there. Sometimes you go back and look at what was written and go, that's amazing. I can lift that. In fact, I can use that 25 years later. Right. That solves a completely different problem for me. So right there, we were talking about VXLAN. We knew how to do layer two over tunnels. It was L2 GRE. Worked perfectly well. Okay, VXLAN allowed you to put an extra bit of multiplexing in there. That's right. fantastic. Small incremental steps forwards. You know, uh, Geneve has come out, uh, which is sort of that classic IETF thing of why have we got seven tunnel tunneling protocols, which are almost the same thing? Can't we just make one of them? We'll see how it gets adopted. It's it's good. It's good work. I mean, I like it, but you know, VXLAN exists, so why move on? Uh, well, I mean, even if you look at some of the, I remember the early days, especially was like true proprietary protocols were chosen and Cisco had a lot where it was like, you're like, seriously, you're going to have iGrip, you know, like, 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 why did there have to be like a, a, a grip and an iGrip? Like, why did there have to be a proprietary protocol based on the standard, like just some kind of IP wrapped inside it? And in the end, I think the open standards have definitely won out because we realized that there was no single monolithic monopolistic capability to you know run the backbone and in order to have participant players and partnership players there is no way that we could do this and, and involve yeah. proprietary protocols it was a it was a weird game for a while probably through the, guess, you, the you, 80s and 90s but you could watch it i mean if you go back and re go and read your 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 classic learn networking 101 manuals or learn routing 101s. They talk about an interior routing protocol and an exterior routing protocol. And that, I, I believe, stems back to the days where the exterior routing protocol was BGP, because that was the open standard, because that's where you had to collaborate to make the internet work. 
but your interior routing protocol was the clever thing you bought off a vendor and it was their IPR. Right. And that's why there had to be that distinction. And then you needed a special piece of router that had an exterior BGP speaker right. and an interior proprietary speaker. And it only really took the evolution of, I think it came out of academics, don't quote me on this, who said, we can do link state protocols. You know, let's go have a try at OSPF or ISIS and merge sort of simultaneously in, in different standards body. And then a little bit of arguing over whose was better. And they've sort of mashed them together and, and done the best of both now. And at that point, everyone went, well, can't we just run that as our interior routing protocol? And it just works. And at that point, proprietary sort of left because there was no real advantage to having it anymore. Although I know yeah. I got still, it's still out there because it comes free with every Cisco box you buy. That's right. When, and when you get into you know, don't, don't get me wrong, it works. <laughs> That's that's it, right? And and I think of the days of, like I said, there's some poor chap out there that wrote a fiber channel over token ring paper, thinking this was going to be the the thing. And I remember ATM to the desktop. That was also I worked in financial services. Yes. And there was a point at which the development. So I did. I was in a fiber channel, you know, token ring, old school classic protocols. Was like an all like big blue shop. I worked for Sun Life Financial. Right. So we were. I read about token ring from my. Ne novel networking manual yes. on the way to the interview because they're like how they said how much experience have you had with token ring like i'm 23 years old i've yeah. never even heard of token ring yeah, I've read <laughs> like, it from the yeah. and so I, uh, so my only answer to that question was are you entirely token ring or do you have ethernet uh you know involved in your network as well oh we do have some ethernet i'm like thank god he didn't ask a follow-up question you know, I, I knew about this thing and, and those were like mm. th those changes in the in the physical infrastructure aligns then with, you know, protocol changes and network changes. But yeah. ATM as a speed thing was like people were putting big bets that that was going to be like every trading workstation would have an ATM card and we were doing all these designs. And then, of course, Ethernet, you know, one out and up and worked. Yeah. You know, it was, it... I think Ethernet is incredibly elegant through its simplicity, and and that the more mature I get in this industry, it's it's the drive for elegance that the true engineering elegance is is something so beautiful, and Ethernet has that elegance of simplicity, which is you know start talking, someone else is talking, back off a bit. I mean, how <laughs> simple is that? I mean, there's 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 no particularly complex algorithm there. And it's what humans do, and it's what birds do, and it's, but it's that great sort of retrospective moment of, well, that was obvious, but how long did it take us to, I say us, the guys who developed it, brilliant, really very, very clever. So, yeah, um, I think the hardest bit, when one looks back at, at, at a career, and I'm only halfway through, I like to think, there are always those moments when you just didn't see the next thing coming. Right. Um, um, many years ago, um, I was in my 20s. I was uh, sat at a barbecue with uh, my now wife and a friend of hers and her boyfriend. And he, he was a Cambridge computer science uh, undergraduate, or and she was a postgrad at the time. And I was just chatting to him, saying, You know, what are you doing? You know, it sounds like you're doing computer science, I'm doing computer science, that sounds really cool. And he explained at some length how he was emulating x86 instructions on x86 and i understood every single word he said and i completely understood about emulation and for the life of me i couldn't work out 
why he was emulating x86 on x86. And his name was Keir Fraser, and he went on to be one of the founding members of Zen, and uh, he's one of the smartest people I've met. So, yeah, to, to have someone explain virtualization by one of the inventors of virtualization, yeah. and to go, no, I don't, I don't see why you'd want to do that. That's, that's how I know I'm not the smartest person in a room, and it keeps me very, very sane. It is a very interesting thing. And like, so one thing that I found recently is seeing the, I try to have as much of a forward view as I can. And I'm lucky enough that I'm away from day-to-day -day operations with a lot of stuff so I can have both sort of the research mind and the applicable practical mind of real implementation. And I remembered seeing some of the early stuff, like, so VMware is an example, they were doing stuff and it was this idea of running vSphere on a, on a Raspberry Pi. And, yes. you know, people sort of said this, like, well, they're like, they really struggled with what the use case was. They said, well, what, what virtual machine could you possibly fit on a Raspberry Pi because of the limited memory and compute yeah. power? And I'm thinking, you magnificent bastards, you have no idea. This is not about running a bloody VM. This is about running a container. This is going to be sitting on a pole somewhere that they are now going to have the control plane because they own the hypervisor. So this is a fantastic opportunity. It has nothing to do with VMs. You are like anthropomorphizing like that this is like i'm applying my belief system on this thing of you absolutely know, and now that we see it in play we're then seeing these edge cases god which is always the worst thing we talk edge cases meaning the a case literally cases of edge case of computing right where we are like internet of things sort of came and went as a fad of the of the the topic but it's it's still lingering around. But I know what you mean. It was it was the big thing, and it right. didn't quite me what it was. And and I'm I think Edge might be very close to suffering the same fate. I mean, you can stand and do a keynote speech about how Edge is really important in the same way one can do the same thing about IoT. And the underlying idea of there are small, reasonably low powered, and everything is considerably more powerful than low powered was eighteen months ago, thanks to Mr. Right. Um, you know, but there are still peripheral devices that are doing localized things, you know, uh, data aggregation, data fusion, or, or, or actually communicating with end users. And then um, aggregated information is flowing back into the guts of the network. That was the IoT story. And yes, it's very valid. That's also the Edge story. Yes, it's very valid. Edge sprinkles a bit of cloud in there as well. But what it really is and where the market really is, is... is is not 100% clear. So this, this actually brings me on to, to what Ori's doing in this market, which is we've looked long and hard about this. Um, you know, the company's been around for a number of years looking at this edge cases, looking at the telco cases, and our, our takeaway from some exploratory work and some early product ideas and some early market testing was the problem is actually orchestration. And it goes back to your your point about VMware on Raspberry Pi. It wasn't right. about running Windows on a Raspberry Pi. That's that's not the right way to think about it. It's about virtualization and orchestration. It's about running, giving a, a stable baseline where you can just plonk a workload and hot swap it out and do all the things which having a VM or having some kind of virtualization or even better containerization, that is the benefit. And we're seeing that what we're seeing with the, with, with the with the edge market is 
there isn't a purely edge use case. Edge is the is the edge, hence the name, of a, a spectra which reaches all the way back into the hyperscalers. And your application now is not a container which runs at point A. It's a whole suite of containers and a whole suite of, of, of data storage that spreads between edge locations and spare bits of kit that you're renting off telcos and bits of legacy data center you've got on your factory floor or that you built in the 1990s because everyone told you that you should be building huge data centers before the cloud took off and you've still got them and you can't sell them or, or there's you know there's legal reasons why you have to hold the data in that country rather than the other country or whatever and of course there's the hyperscalers and their prices go up and down so you might not want to lock yourself into a single vendor if you're very price conscious or whatever but your application lives across all of that and you know, uh, everyone should be familiar with the uh, it was the I think it was 2019 might have been 2017 um, presentation where one of the senior engineers at Netflix stood up and said this is microservices and you can see it on YouTube somewhere and I'm sure we can find the link for it and it was the seminal introduction to most people right. who've never really heard of microservices when Netflix did that thing of look at all this mad stuff we're doing and everyone just went oh that's brilliant you know event driven da, 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 functions as a service and all this kind of play and then take a step back and look at the complexity and say, how do I deploy that without a team of 150 really expert container and virtualization engineers and the pockets as deep as Netflix is? Right. <laughs> if you're a company that makes bicycles and you have a factory floor where you've got some automated CNC machines, so you need some compute there, and you might have some fire detectors or some uh, you know, intelligence around your, your electricity consumption or whatever, so you've got some edge devices, some IoT devices, and you want to aggregate that and put a bit of machine learning in, and you've got four of these sites, and you've got a headquarters with a load of financial services, and you want to run some unified applications across this estate and use some of the hyperscalers, but you make bicycles. You don't want to hire 25 Kubernetes engineers because they're expensive and Kubernetes moves fast and is complex. And, and um, you know, I, I hire Kubernetes engineers and they're reassuringly expensive. If your main job is bicycles, how do you turn around to your CFO and say, I need to spend a large sum of money on network guys to, or, or infrastructure guys to make my cloud journey work? So that was the realization Ori came to was, orchestration is what the world needs. So I'm going to disappear off into another analogy here. Uh. <laughs> I love my analogies. Everyone, uh, everyone laughs and points at me at work because of, because of my analogies. But if, if you think back to the, the days of um, the days before Linux was pervasive in the enterprise as a, a server solution for running everything, which it is now, I think, I think we can all agree. There was that moment before the Debian project, Susie Red Hat, really kicked in where you could run some Unix. It might be Linux. It could be something else, POSIX-ish. Um, but really, you needed an older guy with a beard. I can say that. I'm an older guy with a beard who knew how to run, configure, make, make, install, and work out your, your SO dependencies. And Because he had the source code, so he knew how to build it, and he knew how to he knew what GCC was and could, could do all of this. And then he could make your application, and, oh, look, it would run, and there was a primitive web server, and it could, you could build a LAMP stack. And that was great. But no serious enterprise was going to 
invest heavily in shifting all their infrastructure off onto this when they could just go to IBM and pay a suitable check and get a pre-canned, you know, DB1 installation on, on servers that arrived in the back of a truck. The tipping point was when the various Linux packages arrived. And suddenly you could say sudo apt install that Apache. And suddenly you had a web server and it you didn't need a PhD to do it. You didn't need to understand what GCC was. It went and got it from somewhere, it installed it, and then it was running. And that suddenly meant enterprises could say, yeah, we'll do this. It's not gonna cost us a, a, an arm and a leg to do this. Let's do some proof of concepts. Oh, wow, this works. Oh, we don't need that IBM contract anymore or Sun or whoever. We can just get some more cheap tin and we can just spin up this Linux thing and we've got these packages, be it RPM, be it Deb, be it, doesn't matter. It just packaged. So we're trying at Ori to say we can copy that. So we're defining what we call a package, which is a de declarative description of all the containers that make up that entire product you deploy, that entire service application and all the microservices that make up. So not only the containers, but also the placement rules for those containers. So you can think of it in terms of uh, Kubernetes uh, selectors. So that gives you half the picture. That tells you what you need to put where. But you also need to record how these individual pieces talk to each other. So we also lay down all the network routing rules, so all the traffic rules. And we're not just talking about layer 7 Istio service mesh, because when you're talking factory automation and edge, there's a lot of stuff which is still running at layer three or is tunneled over layer three. So we're right. talking about proper VPN connection. So with this declaration of a package, we have a orchestrating control plane to which you can attach disparate Kubernetes clusters, be they in the hyperscaler, be they on your own premise, be them rent them off some telco who has spare capacity in their mech. Uh, be them little IoT devices running, uh, you know, the latest versions of Minikube or these really tiny Kubernetes installations. You can connect all these up within your within your account, take packages and say, this is my estate, this is my fleet of clusters that I want you to use. Go discover what they're capable of doing. Here is a package, deploy it, and it will do the heavy lifting of matching this to that, orchestrating that to that, and doing that SD WAN function to build a private secured because uh, IPsec and WireGuard are all fantastic and will give you that security perimeter. We'll do that SD-WAN piece because we have the expertise to do that. You don't have to hire guys to do it. Sure, you can do it manually in the same way that you can run GCC manually, but you don't right. want to because it's going to cost you an arm and a leg every time you do. We'll just do that. We, we've got software that knows how to read these packages, that knows how to build it. We'll establish those VPNs. We'll deploy it and we'll then watch it. We'll see how that deployment went and we'll monitor and say, oh, we've got a big flux of, of, of traffic that's coming in on certain ingresses or we haven't scaled out that sufficiently or do you know what? We actually, our algorithm placed that badly. Let's move it. So you've got that little feedback loop of work out how you're going to deploy it, deploy it, watch it, adjust it, move it, redeploy it, shift it and adjust it. And we're... We're not there yet. We're starting to build out the AI and ML capability so that we can start to watch a deployment and then start to say, okay, I'm going to start moving it in advance of, of something happening. Or, um, oh, you're pushing out a new version of that. Actually, I can, based on 
what I learned running the previous version, I'm going to predict that we might want to do this with it. There may be some false assumptions there. It, going back to the research conversation, great area of research, real yeah, fun yeah. trying to get the right models and make sure we've got the right data to train them and learn them and make sure we're not doing something really bonkers. You know, it's 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 fun stuff. It's proper hardcore fun stuff. So yeah, yeah. that's that's what we're doing at, at, at Ori. So it's it's networking and orchestration and workloads, but it's a bit different. We see it as a step forwards and we see it as as pretty novel and unique. And the feedback we're getting from um, various infrastructure partners and uh, customers and end users is positive. You know, and a number of serious players uh, in this area are saying that's the missing piece. You know, it's there are monitoring solutions out there. Yeah, sure. Show me a list of all my Kubernetes clusters. Tell me what CPU load is right. happening. Tell me what's fallen over. It's great. They're great tools, but they just tell you what's happening. And you can use Helm to deploy stuff. And, and the Kubernetes scheduler is amazing, and it will deploy. Kubernetes is a fantastic runtime. It will deploy the stuff over your nodes. That's great. But you need to be able to bring that all together and say, actually, I've got more than one cluster, and I don't just want to federate it. I, you know, I actually I want to understand these are separate islands of compute with separate capabilities, and I want to network them together, not just federate them and scale them out as though it's a giant LAN and saying this is just a big cluster. Because you hit... Um, well, there's lots of actual just structural limitations and technical yeah, yeah. limitations because the community itself is sort of at war over what's the right way to approach federation. And and mm -hmm. while that was going on, the funny thing is like HashiCorp Nomad just like said, hold yeah. my beer, we got this. We've we've been federated from day zero. Yes. And there's I'm seeing massive implementations on that. I'm not just saying that as a guy that happens to have plural site courses about HashiCorp Nomad because it's as a as a so this is the interesting thing talking standards versus implementation it could be a vhs versus beta problem in mm -hmm. that beta was the was the better standard better yeah. quality everything was better about it and yet vhs won out not that i'd say that kubernetes is poor but it there are a lot of problems that are still prevalent in the kubernetes technology and in the community's ability to address these problems that have been solved by other things, and yet Marathon, DCOS, gone, mm -hmm. Nomad, not, not as widely implemented as one would, would assume it could be. Rancher, so there are other- Not other going as far as, as, as people would have liked, and it is good technology, you know. It's, yeah. It's, mm. But Kubernetes in itself is, is interesting. And look, what I really admire about the way you described the problem that you're solving with Ori, it's funny that, when people look at like what does a company do, and I think back to like Martin Casado, right, and and coming up with Nicira and seeing it literally like when it was brand new, and him presenting to a bunch of us nerds, and he's talking about this idea of like compressing and distributing TCAM tables and being able to to centralize and yet decentralize TCAM tables to yeah. surpass the limits of of memory in in local memory. And it was like. Like you're, everybody's like, wow, you're solving these interesting networking problems. And, and it, like it dawned on me right away. I'm like, but you're not, you're actually creating secure boundaries for these yeah. ones. And you're actually treating these as ultimately security zones. Yes. This is a security platform that uses networking as the route to get this. 
And so while a lot of people struggled with, is this virtualized networking? You're like, no, no, it's, it is security, secure virtual networking. And then you yes. look back to Martin's research and he was a security researcher. All of his papers, his PhD was on secure protocols and secure networking. But there's a tactical implementation, which is really about this control plane layer that needed to be solved. And so in my mind, when I listen to your story of, of what Ori is, is solving, while there are tactical things that you're doing at the technology layer, the fundamental problem is how do we orchestrate and operate these environments at any scale? Yes. And, and simultaneous, and it's, it's that, it's that paradigm shift. It's going right back to the start of this chat. It was take a step back. What is the problem we're trying to solve? And it's, it's actually the problem that, that, Kubernetes has done a pretty good job of, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a flag waver for Kubernetes. It, you know, there are things which it doesn't do well, but the vast majority of functionality is really good. Here is a bunch of compute nodes. Here is some workload, put it on there and, and just sort of schedule it and, and watch it when it goes bang. Take that problem, zoom out. Okay, here we've got disparate compute that's connected right. and some stuff I need to run on it. Sprinkle it down and connect it up. And you can sort of see my history in in um, non-traditional metrics and, and that kind of fuzzy edge of the network piece of a lot of people at that point go, oh, that networking, that's that's kind of ad hoc and we're just kind of building stuff and, and it can change and it can move and it can be dynamic. And I think I'd like to think what I've brought to Ori is the, the confidence to say, oh, no, I've got that, guys. I come from that background. I've, I've been doing this for 15 years now, spinning up uh secured overlay networks on demand moving them relocating them doing that you know um this isn't the first dynamic routing protocol i've written yeah so, you know and, and if you're looking at people who've come from much more of a traditional cloud native environment yeah they're they're absolutely hot shots when it comes to getting those containers and, and understanding all about umount and all this kind of stuff and, and really understanding and the container wrapped in this whole hope of standing up persistent p2p vpns which just yeah. doesn't exist in that that world like they're just you can't have dependence on that and that's <laughs> but it, again it's like i love this idea that decentralized data planes are aren't actually difficult it's the control plane to operate a decentralized and dynamic yes. data plane like yes. and you have to solve both of them together yes because one bootstraps the other right so you've you've got to have that you've got to have that control plane in order to understand what's there so that you can then help them communicate between themselves Ironically, in, in, in you can you can do it without that control plane, and I have, and this is kind of what they're trying to do in the delay tolerance yeah, area. Ha and start hammering YAML out on your on your keyboard and, until you're um, forget a million think, monkeys in Shakespeare. A million monkeys could could eventually drive the amount of YAML required to run Netflix. That's really the problem I think that we think we're solving. And, and, and what what I what I am driving forwards to say is you don't need to write that YAML anymore. You don't need right. to dynamically churn out that YAML every time there's a change, every time a node goes down, because yeah, they do all the time. Every time the network changes in some unplanned, unspecified manner, you're not busy hammering out Helm charts or whatever other sort of YAML you're using. 
no, no, you've got a system that's doing that, you know, in the same reason that, that you know, we're not having to hand run make files every time or, or God forbid, even run GCC on the command line. You've just got a package manager, sudo apt update, sudo apt upgrade. Oh, look, it changed. It's done something. Everything it needed to know and, and the system to make it happen is there. It just does it. And I'm always nervous about using the word de-skilling because it implies people lose jobs and and i imagine the target audience to for a lot of this would be people whose bread and butter is going in to help enterprises spin out and be, do their cloud transformation journey but a lot of companies out there can't afford to and right. that's that's the bare reality and and if we can lower the bar of entry to allow companies to get on that cloud journey because it, it there's real benefit for them in terms of Capabilities because all the software is going in that direction, and if they can't use these new tools and can't get on that that ladder, then they're going to lose out to the competitors who can. But if we can lower the bar of entry, so as getting that first foot on the ladder and using this this much much more modern software, then if we can lower that price, then they're going to be able to do it, and it, and, and that is really appealing to them. But equally, at the upper end of the scale, we need to make sure that we can take advantage of of all the intelligence that comes out of um, and let me take a step back. So we're Kubernetes native because it gives us a beautiful, even playing field upon which we can orchestrate. But not all Kubernetes is the same. And you can see that, uh, you know, Red Hat is competing with OpenShift against uh, Canonical's own rolled version of, of Kubernetes right. and VMware have got TKG and, you know, every, every company that used to have a, a version of Linux or their own hypervisor now has their own Kubernetes blend. And they're all targeted to slightly different verticals and they all have, you know, don't get me wrong, they're all really good and they all have their unique differentiators. So although we can target the native uh, Kubernetes and that's great, there is advantage for us to be able to understand, oh, we're running on OpenShift. Okay, cool, we can start to reach down using the OpenShift APIs to do some of the cleverer stuff in there. Oh, we're running right. on VMware Tanzu. Great. We know we're on a telco Mac. We can reach down and say, okay, let's do some 5G network slicing if it is needed by the package. Or this cluster is now a good place to put things which want to do 5G stuff because I happen to know it's Tanzu and we can reach down and do it. So although we have that sort of surface of the lake where we know we can float our little boats, it also means we can reach down under the water and say, actually, we can make smarter decisions to make sure that application performs exactly how um, the uh, not only the organization who are deploying it, but also the original authors of the application. So and again, that goes back right. to that package concept where, um, so we, uh, just like it's, everyone it's, else. It's that awareness of, it's a self-awareness of the underlying capabilities of the infrastructure, right? Being able to pull the levers that are there. You don't need the levers to run, but when the levers are there, you know what to do with those levers. Yeah. And ultimately, you as you create artifacts for deployments, you can tune them in the same way that, you know, uh, you know, apt-get versus sudo-yum, you know, whatever it's going to be. Yeah. If you were to go through, uh, I mean, our, I came from the days and I, I remember I sent a tweet one time and it said like, you know, retweet if you've ever compiled a kernel, you know, favorite if it went wrong, you know, like because you missed a driver. And it literally had like a thousand retweets and replies. It was the stream. I had to shut off my notifications for like a week and a half yes. because 
we all remember doing this thing where like just some some human error occurred or some you know missed parameter or some missed thing on the command line and all of a sudden it's just off doing its thing and you're you forgot to include a keyboard driver so you've literally just wiped out your <laughs> your interface after as soon as you reboot but, I remember I remember those days. I remember uh, building custom embedded uh, operating systems using build root, and you would burn them onto an SD card, and then the device we were booting, you had to unscrew the lid, put the SD card in, then screw the lid back on because it had anti-tamper switches, so it wouldn't tear <laughs> on with the lid off. And it would take you four hours to build a kernel, three, three quarters of an hour to get the bloody lid off, and then you'd turn it on and go, yeah, no TTY driver. <laughs> yeah. But I, and I remember thinking of the early days, right? LRP was one of my favorite early projects I worked with, the Linux router projects. Like yes. the idea that you could just take a small, like little, you know, old 286, whatever, and just stick it over in the corner with two NIC cards in it. And I was creating these like distributed networks in my in my house, much to the chagrin of my parents and 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 my roommates, you know, who would always be like, You're crazy. But it was those those sort of like me diving in early to those nerd fundamentals gave me the appreciation of the higher level abstractions now that are here. It's not that we don't need that skill set. So we we still will need people who can be YAML jockeys, as we sort of call yes. it, right? Like, but yet you shouldn't have to be networking to be good at networking 20 years ago. You had to know brown, brown and white, blue, blue and right, green. Like you literally, like it was, you would get asked in an interview, what is the order of unshielded twisted pair and standard implementation for like, and that was treated as a skill, right? Yes. And now it's so different that like, we don't even have to worry about RIP V1 when we talk about protocols anymore gone, but yet it was fundamental to the early part Absolutely. of my career. So now I've adapted and, and I can now skill people up by giving them an understanding of, hey, look, I knew day to day you still need to be able to do this because when troubleshooting comes down, this beautiful abstracted system may go sideways and we may have to go manual for a minute. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. However, those fundamentals that you understand the underpinnings give should give you an appreciation for the abstraction and the control plane because now you are systems thinkers instead of you know down at the bits which is uh you know and i think we underestimate the skill of people who i know like tons of people who literally still could tell you brown brown and white blue but like 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 it's, it's jammed into my head because i've had to say it so many times right mm. the the one twist in the middle right yes those yes. same people are incredibly smart it's just that we saw them as limited as like, oh, that's that's Emil. He's the guy that cuts cables in the data center. I'm like, Emil's going to night school learning TCP IP. Yeah. Like so you may what, think what, he's the cable guy, but that cable guy is much smarter than we would give him credit for. I th I think one of the nice things that's emerged in sort of the, the, the 21st century IT startup, you know, uh, computer startup culture, the one of the nice things that's come out of it is the, is, and it's sort of riding on the back of the agile movement is, that concept of a multifunctional team. And if you've got, you know, a team of, of seven or eight smart people and you've got the guy who's come from a background of infrastructure, uh, you know, he's he 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 can he can build you a server from zero in, in, in seconds without even 
blinking. And you've got the guys who, pure computer scientists, they, they can do the graph theory with their eyes shut, but they get a bit confused when you put them in front of anything more than Python. You know, and you've got the guys yeah. who only speak C. Uh, and But you get them all in one room and you get them all firing on the, uh, on the same team and suddenly those barriers disappear. And you don't have a guy, as you described, whose career was twisting cables. Yeah. And, oh, yeah, he's got a CCNA, he's staying in the server room. That, 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 I think we lost the input of some really great people when we were still stuck in silos. And I know early in my career, I worked for a, a couple of big uh, Leviathans in the defense industry who um, have now changed in their defense. But right. at the time, they they were making good money without having to change. And uh, yeah, I'm really glad that's kind of stopped and moved on. And I think we've got Silicon Valley to, to help for that. Yeah, or yeah, the concept, you know, rather right. Than yeah, yeah. That's that. that going back to the roots of, you know, even if you know, there's many, many examples, but that like lean movement and the idea of like stuff that we learned from other things, and that was it. Like I remembered working with my networking team, and I was a server person, right? Like I worked, I started in desktop support, then got into server support, and I would kept sort of rocketing around different areas of the organization, trying to learn more, and then I remembered talking to the networking team and, and I would get yelled at by my server people. They're like, why are you talking to the networking guys? I'm like, I'm not sure if you're familiar what happens between our servers, but there's a network. And if you don't understand and work with those fine folks that are over there, they're going to be a pain in your backside. Hmm. So, so let's learn what they do and actually care about what they do. And in the end, I learned a lot about it. And then I ended up getting my CCNA and then teaching my networking team how to pass the ccna course because they're all fantastic networkers but they've never learned how to take a, an exam yeah and so i did exam prep with them and you know three for three i picked three keen candidates and they got their ccna and it's like it they should just get one honorary because of what they do yeah. every day but i had to teach them how to take the test and then that allowed me to get my ccnp and that all of a sudden I'm getting all this networking gear built up in the in you know in the x86 team's closet. And they're like, why are you doing this? And again, it was this thing of like, because I see beyond the walls of my team. Yes. Like if we are going to interact in ways that you don't understand yet. And five years later, it was there. And there was no choice but to like, hey, we're now moving the protocols and moving networking inside the servers. So now I'm a VMware admin and now I'm doing virtual network administration. I'm doing VLAN administration inside the hypervisor. Well, guess what? If I didn't have friendlies in the networking team, how are we going to work this out? Right. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a beautiful evolution, I think. And we're, as you said, we're getting there and, and we're seeing the advantages. I, I can literally go all day. I know we, we have to wrap up and I- Yeah, we do eventually, but uh, yeah, no. And I, I unfortunately I do go on all day. And so- Nothing good for you about it, Rick. This is fantastic. I, I, I really, this is, I, I think a great thing. We've covered a lot of stuff, but I, I did want to close up and talk about- Absolutely. You know, what's ahead, you know, in, in the sort of the near term right now for, you know, 2020, Two are we in? Because whatever yeah, year it is, it's 2022 <laughs> already. Yeah, and uh, and we've we're going back in person a bit more. 
we're going to see more hopefully shows and and chances yeah. to expose our our platforms and our offerings to people in person again what's kind of your your big plans for this coming few months so my 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 big plans for the next coming few months apart from uh getting the next version of uh the ori core global edge product out of the door so that's that's kind of my my day job is is just making sure we get that out the door and it's 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 all looking good i'm you know i'm not having heart palpitations um apart from that uh it's going to be a little bit of learning and a little bit of collaboration so i'm really hoping after you know after the last two years i want to go to kubecon i want to go to cncf i want to go and right. see what all the cool kids are playing with now i want to i want to bump into smart people who want to talk too fast and too loud about the cool things because I love that and I've missed that over the last two years and and, and I can be one of those people as well who's just like this is really exciting I have to tell you yeah but that's a hallway lot of track yeah that, the hallway that track. Is, it, it's so needed no matter how I've I've attended a lot of virtual events and it's just it's, it's just not at all the same it's not there it's it's like the, it's like the kitchen at a party it's it's where the best best kids are you know it's, it. it's it's the hallway track at conferences is where you you really get a sense of of where industries are going um so there's that and i really want to go just as a participant uh, and then i've got uh i'm going to do the first I, I am currently intending to do the first uh ietf meeting back in the states in person in philadelphia in i think it's july i need to check the dates uh so i'm really looking forward to that i'm really looking forward to catching up with all my uh, my friends who i've been speaking to off and on over the years yeah. uh great to see all them in person again and uh Oh, I don't look beyond July. Um, <laughs> yeah, we kind of. I've definitely kind of a narrow view on 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 futures for stuff, just because it's. But it is like you said, it's those those things we look forward to, and and yeah. I'm definitely will be keenly watching what you and the Ori team are doing. If people want to get in touch and get in contact yeah. with you, Rick, what's the best way to do that? So the best way is uh, probably to visit our website, which is ori.co. And so that should give you the introduction to the company and the product, and it's got all the reach out there. Um, yeah, I, I'm not very good at social media because, as my wife says, I'm basically antisocial. So <laughs> I, 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 there's no point trying to follow me on Twitter. I'm not there. Um, otherwise, um, yeah, the best thing is probably just to reach out through the through the Ori website. Um, we try and get some blogs. We're building it out. Um, so hopefully I'll try and get a bit more technical content on there. Otherwise, come and speak to me at the IETF. That's fairly easy. Um, yeah, that's that's the best way to get hold of me. There you go. Now I've got to, now I've got to find it. I'm going to put it on my calendar. I got to find a bloody way to get myself to uh, to to that. Uh, it would be great to meet in in real yeah. life, IRL, as the yeah. kids say. So uh, yeah, IRL. Do they still say that, or are we now showing our age? <laughs> I, I'm I'm probably yeah. I'm I'm even more showing my age that I'm quoting the kids, and there's they've probably got a new phrase for it. So it's yeah. uh, that's, Rick, that's, that's when you know you're old. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. This was absolutely great. Thank you very much. No, thank you, Eric. Um, great fun. I'm sorry we went long, but I, I oh no, this is perfect. Trust me, like I said, it's I I could I I'm I'm only bound by the unfortunate limits of 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 other beatings it's a, yeah, and, and other exactly. timing. It's uh, in general. I uh, I've I've always heard it's my favorite feedback about this is that people love the fact that they 
they leave when the conversation finishes. It's not as though there's like a time. Yes. There's no like I have a 20 minute attention limit. It's it's very much that when you're in the flow of, of a great conversation, there's no bounds other than the, the 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 unfortunate end because of some some bumper of time or something or other. So it's uh, uh but like I said, this is this is definitely a great example of how how fun it can be that I've I all of a sudden I was like, oh, good golly, <laughs> I have to, I probably have no, to. Go it's do absolutely thing. fine. It's been, uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank it's you very great. much for inviting me on. So, uh, yeah, no, thank you. Really, really appreciate that. It was a very entertaining chat. Excellent. Thank you. No worries.